This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, we're going to dive into a concept many of you may have heard of or are familiar with, protective factors. And we're going to do it in a two-part series. Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Oates with Information Gateway. In a general sense, protective factors are conditions or attributes, like skills, supports, or coping strategies that someone or a group of people, like a family, have that help them deal more effectively with stressful events and mitigate or eliminate risks. Within the child welfare field, and specifically for this podcast, we're going to be talking about protective factors as traits that increase or support the ability to mitigate risks for child abuse and neglect. This is part one, where our guests discuss the actual definitions of protective factors and how the implementation of factors is a bit different from typical child welfare practice. We also discuss sort of the micro and the macro application of protective factors. Specifically, we go down to the level of how individual professionals can identify and distinguish the factors when working with parents and families. But we also discuss that macro approach to how protective factors can be applied across entire communities and with community-based programs. Now, in part two, we'll actually discuss implementing protective factors throughout an entire child welfare agency. So joining the show today are Kaylin O'Connor. She's a senior policy analyst for the Center for Study in Social Policy and a key figure in CSSP's Strengthening Families Approach and Protective Factors Framework. And also we're joined by Tabitha Kelly, Division Chief with Arlington County, Virginia's Children and Family Services. At the end, we'll come back. I'll point to some additional resources you can find and set up part two of this two-part series. But for now, let's get right into our conversation with Kaylin O'Connor and Tabitha Kelly discussing protective factors in child welfare. So, Kaylin, I'd like to start with you and just kind of give us the overview sense. When we use the term protective factors in child welfare, what's the definition that that you and CSSP are are using? Protective factors are characteristics, whether they are at the individual or family or community level, that make positive outcomes more likely. In the research literature, there are actually two separate concepts. One is protective factors, which make positive outcomes more likely in the face of risk. Another is called promotive factors. Those make positive outcomes more likely across the board, regardless of risk. We tend to use protective factors as shorthand to mean both of those concepts because the protective factors that we've identified in the Strengthening Families Framework are actually both protective and promotive factors. And our parallel framework, Youth Thrive, that's uh, protective and promotive factors for young people, we use the term protective and promotive factors more consistently just because that terminology is used more in the youth development field. So give me a sense of what those protective factors, in the, in the general sense, what they are. Some of those key things when, when an agency looks at, to think about, okay, is this a protective factor or not? Kind of what are those categories that, that, that these would fall under? Our Strengthening Families framework organizes under five categories of protective factors. That's not saying those are all the protective factors that exist in families' lives, but these five 
are ones that we identified through the literature as things that we could change through our interactions with families in different service settings. So that said, they are uh, mostly related to the parent themselves. So parental resilience, which includes the ability to thrive despite adversity, uh, which also refers to parents' mental health status and ability to be the parent they want to be, regardless of what else is going on in their lives. Then we talk about knowledge of parenting and child development, which is, of course, very critical. And I would say often our interventions for parents focus on that one and ignore some of the others. But there we're talking about having appropriate expectations for what children can do at different ages, um, making appropriate decisions based on your individual child and their developmental readiness. And um, particularly for families who have children with special needs, um, that this becomes very important of understanding your own child. The next protective factor is social connections, where we talk about the importance of having someone to turn to to talk to, someone to call when you need a hand with something, when you need someone to watch the kids with short notice, all of these kind of things that uh, are the opposite of social isolation and uh, that really make it possible to be the parent you want to be. We also talk about concrete supports in times of need, which is uh, a large category that can include everything from formal services like child welfare intervention um, <clears throat> and domestic violence support, food pantries, all of that. But concrete support can also be delivered through social connections. So it could be a neighbor who brings over a casserole when you have a new baby. That's, that's also a concrete support in times of need. And that's the kind of thing that helps families feel supported and get through those challenging times. And the final one we talk about is nurturing children's social emotional competence. So this is the one where we're actually looking at the child, but again, we're still looking at what the parent does to help that child develop their social emotional skills. And that's also something, of course, that teachers, childcare providers, um, caseworkers can also work on with kids. But primarily we're looking at how do we support the parents to play that role in their children's lives. It, it, if when you start listing all of these out, the first thing that comes to my mind is these are all positive influences as opposed to we walk in many times and if there's a family in need, we turn around and say, all right, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? Where here you're looking at, okay, what's good, what's right, what's supportive? Do you have to kind of really separate that mindset? Because many folks may look at this and say, okay, where is this different from a risk factor? Do you have to play this game or is it easily recognized? Or do people you know, understand the difference between a protective factor and a risk factor? Well, I think in a lot of cases, you can see the protective factors as the flip side, the other side of the coin of some of the risk factors we talked about. So, for example, when we talk about social connections, to me, that tells us a lot more about what to do with a family than just knowing that social isolation is a risk factor. So social connections being more positive tells us where to focus our energy and what we're trying to build as opposed to just what's a concern. In the child welfare field in particular, we sometimes have uh, caseworkers who are a little reluctant to use a strength-based approach because their job is to make sure that the child is safe. And so they want to focus on and address the risk factors. And we're never saying that that's not important. We know that is important. But we know that we can mitigate a lot of those risk factors by approaching it from strengths. And that is a much more positive way to work with families. Uh, it's a much more action-oriented way to go into the work because it's not just saying this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. It's saying there's a strength here we can build on. There's another area that we know you need to be strong in and it seems like you need support there. And you may end up doing a lot of the same interventions that you would do from a risk perspective, but approaching it from strength really makes it less adversarial, 
makes the parent uh, feel more respected and recognized for the strengths they do have. So, Tabitha, I want, I want to bring you in here. In Arlington County, granted, you can only speak for what you're doing there at in Arlington, but how is this kind of approach different, or is it that much different from what somebody may think of as typical child welfare, you know, as we look at typical child welfare today? Yes. Um, typically, the primary concern for child welfare workers, obviously, is going to be the immediate safety threat to a child, and that is absolutely critically important. But it's not the entire picture. If you're solely focusing on the immediate danger, you're sort of missing something. And also focusing simply on the danger aspect doesn't help ensure long-term safety and health. So the protective factors framework helps workers to um, conduct a more comprehensive assessment and get a better picture of what's happening in that family's life. You're certainly considering risk and safety, but you're also looking at those strengths and resources that serve to as a buffer to mitigate that risk. Um, the protective factor framework encourages staff to determine what's going right and what's going well and who in your network can support you. You know, for example, who is as concerned about this child as you are? And then you can bring them in to the network to support the family. And overall, by working in this way, as Kaylin indicated, there are concrete strategies that workers can use to partner with the families around their strengths and validate and support their decision making. So ultimately, it's leading to better outcomes for children in the long run. So we talk about these and you can kind of see, I guess, Tabitha, we're looking at really what are the what's the environment? What are the influencing factors? What makes the situation the situation, which isn't just one child, one parent, one issue, and that's it. So Kaylin just kind of listed out those big picture protective factors. And Kaylin, what are you doing then for those professionals to help them walk into a situation because they never have as, no, as much time as they'd like? How, do they, how are they able to walk in and then identify you know, and recognize what these protective factors are? There's got to be a big key on how do you identify what's there, knowing that you don't have a lot of time to, to really get in depth to all the influences that are happening with a family. I would say that Arlington is one of the counties or jurisdictions around the country that's doing a really good job of integrating this right now. Um, we provide some tools from CSSP that uh, include questions you can ask parents to get at each of the protective factors. Um, we have a set of those questions that are designed for child welfare specifically. We also have a set of those questions for more universal audiences. Um, and I think a lot of it is going into it with parents from a partnership perspective and engaging them in a conversation about, we all want your kids to be safe. We want uh, your kids to thrive. And we have to work with you right now to figure out what support you need um, to help that happen. So uh, I think there are, there are questions you can ask um, even in the intake or uh, investigation point. Um, Tabitha mentioned the question of who else is as concerned about this child as you are. That's a question you can ask of someone who's making a report that helps immediately to identify who, who are the other social connections, who else is in touch with this family that we can get to. And if the, question, if the answer is, I don't know, I don't know if this family has anyone else in their lives, 
then we know that's a concern. So we can get to it um, through a number of different ways, both through interactions with the parents and with, in some cases, the reporter. Um, another uh, way to get at that um, is possibly asking when someone makes a report, what is it that kept you from making a report sooner? Maybe you've been concerned about this family for six months, but the grandma was living in the house. And so you thought they were probably going to be all right. And then grandma left and now you're seeing a deterioration. That's going to tell us a lot about that family's past social support and whether that's changed and kind of give you some insight into what's really going on that gets beyond just what's the situation that occurred and that you're concerned about, but getting a broader picture of what's going on with that family. And making the most of those interviews and where are you looking for? Because it's not just getting the assessment, but trying to find what's the what's the story behind the story uh, on these. So, Tabitha, you've got this turnover within child welfare. And so you're always trying to train and get staff up to speed. As Kaylin mentioned, those tools, how are you using those and are you using maybe uh, other methods to kind of equip your staff to have that capability to, to really not only identify, but to ask questions, use the tools. And, you know, when they're out there, at times they're kind of out there alone. So what are you doing to try to ensure and, and make sure your staff is kind of armed with the best information or the best tools possible? Sure. I, I certainly believe that it really all starts with leadership believing that all families have strengths, that families are the experts on themselves. And that's just not a lip service. Like staff really need to believe that in the depths of their bones, right? And so then you you hire staff who share that philosophy first and foremost, so that it's easier to carry on those tasks because you you can they can more easily share the vision and add to it. So creating a shared vision um, was important for us here in Arlington. And we sat down and we had a brainstorming session as um, a leadership team and said, where do we want to be? How do we want to engage families? How can we make the best impact? And we developed a logic model and it became an amazing uh, infrastructure tool for us to start creating action steps toward that. So that was first and foremost. And staying um, intentional uh, with what we're doing and making sure that this approach doesn't strike staff as like another flavor of the month initiative, right? But the protective factors framework is an approach that can easily overlay on existing programs, practices, and policies. So it really dovetails nicely with a lot of what's already happening. And so when you see staff doing things that are in line with the protective factors framework, you're recognizing that you're highlighting all of those small but significant changes that ultimately create great momentum, right? And then you're redesigning tools that embed the protective factors framework inside of it. For example, here in Arlington, we have redesigned our safety and our service planning tools so that we can identify needs and risks, but also strengthen resource as well. And we've integrated the protective factors framework into our um, safe case closure criteria. We've challenged staff to address protective factors in their case presentations so that it can easily be outlined so that we are talking about it quite a bit, right? And we're talking about protective factors in team meetings as well. 
And we've more recently added the protective factors into our performance evaluations so that staff and managers are accountable for good outcomes. So those are some of the ways in which we're trying to embed it and it's actually working. We're going to, that's a great tease for part two, when we really dive into implementing it at, at, at the agency level. So if you're listening here to part one, make sure you want to listen to part two. But Tabitha, you brought up something interesting about the family is their own expert. Nobody knows that family better than that family. But then I, are, is your staff trying to, or do they recognize that once the family can identify a, an area of improvement, once the family can kind of see a solution or suggest a solution, are they seeing bigger buy-in? Because it's almost like somebody understands the path they want to take. They just may need a little help getting there as opposed to somebody trying to force something down. Are, are you guys seeing that? Absolutely. When you're respectfully partnering with families, they're easier to engage and they want to be involved and they stay involved because it's one thing to approach a family member early, but it's another to continue that family engagement throughout the life of the case. And once they're bought in and they can see that, Hey, I'm making some progress here toward my goals and my kids are benefiting and I'm benefiting. Um, they really continue to, um, give voice to their concerns. Um, they are more readily able to speak out in court about what's happening in their lives and even to disagree with us when they need to. And so they're really actively engaged and it's affecting permanency. Kids are going home faster. Uh, families are being creative in the ways in which they support each other. And certainly there's laws and regulations that we have to abide by. And sometimes there's compromise, obviously, that has to be made. But altogether, when you're partnering with families, everyone wins. Yeah. You've really given us a great sense of, of the execution level at that micro level of the protective factors. But and as much as we talk about families, you know, Kaylin, there's a way that that can also be implemented on a higher level as you really kind of look at that macro level with with community groups, right? Right. Um, a lot of communities have started using the protective factors framework in a variety of different systems. And so a lot of times we can, a child welfare system that wants to take on a strengthening families approach uh, may find that the early care and education providers in their community are already trained in this and or the home visitors in their community are using this approach and or the family resource center. In some communities, we even have pediatric clinics and family practice clinics that are well-versed in the protective factors and they think about that when they are approaching the well-being of a family overall. Uh, we have in some states, the corrections department is using the strengthening families protective factors approach before parents are sent home um, after having been in jail. And so, there's a, a lot of potential partners in the community. The challenge might be that you won't know who those partners are right away. Uh, we recently had a conversation with someone in a community who said, well, it just occurred to me that there are a lot of people who speak this language in my community and other systems, but I didn't know they spoke that language, so we weren't really reaping the benefits of it. <laughs> so we want to say that when, uh, when you call together a family team meeting, all of the people around the table should be familiar with protective factors and with this idea of approaching families from a strength perspective. And some of them might already be, they might do that in their own program or, you know, whatever their capacity in the community is, they might be using strengthening families already. 
So it becomes a good way to align our work um, and to kind of connect with other programs. So one program might be able to say, well, we primarily focus on concrete supports in times of need, but we also know that families need social connections. So we do uh, reach out to the Family Resource Center where we know they can go to group events or things like that where we can make connections across systems and make sure that families are getting all the support they need. Is there any communication gaps or lost in translation issues? Or are you finding that these agencies, when they do partner together, kind of pick up and speak the same language? Of course, there are sometimes still going to be communication gaps. But I think the Protective Factors Framework helps to bridge that a lot. Because even within, for example, home visiting programs, uh, when the Affordable Care Act expanded home visiting a lot across the country, the evidence-based programs operating in states and getting additional Uh, funding to expand in states also had a requirement to work together more. And even within home visiting programs, they were speaking different languages about the outcomes they want for families and how they get to them. And when you introduce the protective factors framework, everyone can see where their work aligns to those. And then even though that's still not going to be the language you necessarily speak within your own program, you can connect to others and see where you're on the same page and where somebody has a strength that you don't. Uh, and it's been really useful in that way. So if someone is running a, a small program in a community and they're, you know, they're doing their best, they're plugging away, they've got their either a grant or, or, or whatever's funding them push, uh, you know, pushing through, what's the best place for someone like that to start when it comes to the protective factors? Because many times it's just kind of like you're just dealing with the factory. Issues are coming in and you're trying to put out fires. How do you help uh, like a community-based group kind of take stock, assess, and then apply in a manner that can be sustainable? Well, we actually have um, a set of four different program self-assessments that programs can use to do exactly that, to kind of look at Once you've got an idea of what these protective factors are and you've decided to try to do more of a strength-based approach, you can go through this self-assessment. We have one that's for early care and education programs, one for family-based child care, one for home visiting programs, and one for community-based programs, which is a bit of a catch-all, but really designed with like family resource centers in mind, Um, but it would work for other programs that are delivered in the community. And you can go through, for each protective factor, there are everyday actions you can take that help to build that protective factor. And the self-assessment is structured around those everyday actions. So for each everyday action, there are four or five items. You can rate yourself on how well you're doing them currently. You can identify ones where you want to make a change and start implementing them. And the self-assessments are really designed in a way that there is something there that you're already doing and there's something there that you could do. (laughs) They are wide range of different steps. We refer often to small but significant changes in practice. So as Tabitha said, this is not replacing anyone's current approach to work. It's not replacing the program you're implementing or the curriculum you use, but there are small things you can do differently that will make a difference in how you're interacting with families. And the self-assessment helps to identify those. There is just as much of a internal process. How do I approach my work But there's also the flip side of, okay, how do we help the parents and the families, you know, improve on their end? And so there's this wonderful cycle of, am I doing what is supportive and are they doing what, you know, is, is supporting their own family? So I'll bring both of you here for this, for this question. When you start talking about what are the resources that professionals can then use with parents to help them recognize and build their protective factors? 
are, are there some, I mean, you've got to give families something quick and easy and tangible that they can use. What are you finding that, that, that are those helpful activities and resources that are working? Well, I'll start. Um, there are a couple of resources I'll mention and then um, talk about a process that a lot of communities have used to engage parents. Um, at CSSP, the majority of our materials really are written for professionals. They are about how do you change your practice to build these protective factors. But uh, we did develop a brochure for parents about strong families and with some tune-up tips for each of these protective factors of how to sort of check in on your own family and how you're doing with these protective factors and how to take better care of yourself. And um, it's very universal language. I think it applies to any family. Um, we also have our partners at the National Alliance of Children's Trust and Prevention Funds. They convene a group called the Alliance National Parent Partnership Council. And the parents on that group who are volunteers from around the country have been working through each protective factor and developing some handouts for parents, uh, getting ideas from parents in their own networks about, you know, how do you, uh, you know, increase your knowledge of parenting and child development and just boom, 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 all these uh, quotes from parents about how they do that and why it matters in their life. And, uh, just some really interesting sort of definitely from a parent perspective of talking about each of these protective factors. So those, uh, the resilience one is already out and the remaining four will be coming out over time. It's a volunteer group that meets monthly. So they'll be developing them probably over the rest of this year. Um, the other thing I want to mention is the cafe process. Uh, we have a lot of communities that are using parent cafes or community cafes these are two different approaches that are that share a lot in common. The idea is to bring people together for a guided conversation. It's informal, but you're but it has a structure to it uh, that really helps people to connect with e with each other. It's structured around questions. Um, either for the parent cafe model, there are questions that are directly related to each protective factor, and you have a conversation in a small group about one protective factor. Um, then you move to a different table, mix up your small groups um, and have another conversation with a small group about another question related to that protective factor. And you go around the room and you really connect um, on a very personal level. And people love that. <laughs> parents typically will will see parents who participate in that at their child's school. And then they go to their church and say, we have to do this. And so it sort of snowballs out into the community where people attend one and then they become a facilitator for one and then they host one at another location because they just love it. It's a way to kind of cut through the small talk and get to the heart of some of the challenges of being a parent, which we're all carrying around and yet you stand at the playground and chat about really superficial things, right? <laughs> so um, the Parent Cafe is a way to get parents to really talk about what makes your family strong and where do you need support? Where do you find support? And people make connections through that process, obviously, as well. It's got to be a great way just to also realize for the parents, for anyone, when you share experiences like that, then you realize, you know, I'm not alone. And then you're open to suggestions and open to what works. So, so Tabitha, on your end, you know, those, those actions and, and resources that you are finding for professionals to help parents, in, you know, really improve their skills and the protective factors that, that they can control. Sure. We actually shifted our parenting education classes to a protective factors framework focus. We recreated a class that would promote social connections, for example. Not only is the parent invited to the class, but also their trusted partner or 
another relative in their home or in their in their network so that they could learn the same principles together. One, it obviously promotes social connections, but it also serves as a safety net because there's another adult who is gearing up their knowledge of parenting and um, child development. And so that has been really, that's been really nice. They share a meal together. We provide bus tokens and childcare for concrete supports. So those sorts of things. Um, our staff are utilizing tools that we already had at our disposal. For example, um, using an eco map to look at, to, to ask the parents and caregivers about their network so that they can utilize their own natural supports to a more maximum benefit. Um, we've had staff do things as simple as, let's get in the car, go grocery shopping to see how far we can stretch your budget and meal plan together so that you're not in a situation where you don't have food toward the middle of the month. Middle of the month. Um, developing self-care plans with a stressed out parent. What are you gonna do when you face this next hurdle, what will help you to feel more resilient, to exercise greater self-care? So we put those sorts of things in practice at the local level. And we also model behaviors, you know, with the parent. We may go to a IEP meeting and help the parent formulate the questions to ask or ask them first and, and then role model some of the, that behavior so that they can then do that later themselves in, when they're alone. Um, we've also um, reached out to places of worship and community resources so that they can have more natural supports that will support them rather than the case manager. They can call a pastor in the middle of the night or their synagogue whoever in their network that will extend that level of support. So there's some real concrete strategies that we use with parents and caregivers so that they can effectuate the protective factors framework. And I'd like to add to that because I think everything that Tabitha just described is so strength-based and so much engaging the parent in knowing, identifying what they need to improve on and how they can do that. That's so much about going beyond the, the life of the case, right? That they're gonna carry that forward. And one thing that, a trap that I think a lot of child welfare systems fall into sometimes is setting goals for the parent. First of all, setting goals for the parent, not with the parent or having the parent set goals, but having goals that are about attending a parent in class. Check, <laughs> you do that, you're good. Well, what if you're not a classroom type learner? What if you are closed off to the information that's being shared in that class? What if it's not relevant to your life? Or what if you're a great parent and your problem is that you don't have enough resources to parent your children the way you need to? So when you take a protective factors approach, you get so beyond just checking off the list that you went to this class. It's about how are we gonna meet the needs that you have? And what resources do you need? How can we help you be prepared to get through the month after your cases closed without coming back through these doors. So I think that uh, Tabitha's examples were really helpful for that and uh, identify one of the pitfalls we can find in child welfare where we do see parents coming back over and over again uh, because we've met their, their needs on a very superficial level. 
It's interesting to see how you're able to drill down and get the parent to be a partner. And it just seems to be this overarching shift in understanding that you've got to not force them. You can't, you know, grab them by the hand and say, this is what you're going to do. But it's almost that turnaround and say, how are we going to get there together? How are we going to work forward? And, uh, and it's pleasing for me to hear how we're always kind of taking that strength-based approach and moving forward to you know, not only recognizing it, but almost applying it, getting others involved, you know, and reinforcing it along the way. I'm also really glad that we get to do two parts because we're able to talk about just overarching on the protective factors here, really working at the parent level, the, mac, uh, the micro level, and then touching base with uh, a community. But in part two, as I'm going to tease this, we're really going to say about, okay, if you're thinking about making a change for an agency, we're going to pick Tabitha's brain and Kalen as well on how do you really influence this or, or infuse this across the board throughout an agency. So, Kaylin O'Connor, Tabitha Kelly, I, I thank you for your time. I know we'll pick this back up in, in part two, guys. Thank you so much. So, if you go to the show notes for this podcast, which you can find on the Children's Bureau website, that's acf.hhs.gov cb, and go to the capacity building section, you'll find we've posted a few links for you. Specifically, some of the Center for the Study on Social Policies Strengthening Families materials on the Strengthening Families approach and their Protective Factors framework. Also in the notes, there's a direct link to the National Child Abuse Prevention Month's Protective Factors in Practice. This includes a series of vignettes that demonstrate how protective factors support and strengthen families experiencing stress. These are really great, easy-to-use tools to help train new staff and for working directly with parents. The protective factors in practice, they're part of the Prevention Resource Guide, which also includes a section on working with families using the protective factors that includes deep descriptions of those factors and tips for how both workers and programs can help. You'll also find a link to the entire Prevention Resource Guide so you can download that for free. So coming up in part two of our series on protective factors in child welfare, we continue the conversation with Kaylin O'Connor and Tabitha Kelly. Specifically, we discuss implementing the protective factors within an entire local agency, like Tabitha's done in Arlington County, Virginia. Now, included in that conversation will be Tabitha's advice for other agencies considering incorporating protective factors systemically. And yeah, we get into how she was able to find funding for all of this as well. So look out for part two and check out some of the other podcasts we've created, including working with parents involved in the correctional system, dealing with secondary traumatic stress within your agency, and our episode detailing how a large group of government and community agencies and organizations are successfully working together to respond to human trafficking. Also, be sure to check out childwelfare.gov for all your information needs, new publications, databases, and more to help you and your staff in your day-to-day -day work. So for now, hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.